Hey, Mike. Hi, Caleb. How are you? I'm doing quite well. It's a little bit earlier recording, but it's still past the five o'clock hour, so cocktail hour has begun. It's five o'clock somewhere. And it is five o'clock here, too. So excellent. What, what are you drinking? Uh, tonight, I am drinking an East India Negroni. Mm. Uh, it is a Negroni variation from, I believe, the PDT book, uh, substituting uh, rum instead of gin. And uh, in lieu of uh, the vermouth, it has uh, some East India sherry. Uh, and then the Campari. It's, it's, it's really quite nice. Uh, I was just mentioning that it, it, uh, it's very smooth and it has a very nice taste. It's not quite as bitter as a regular Negroni. Mm-hmm. Highly recommend. All right. uh, what are you drinking? I'm trying something new. Uh, it's called an Orange Blossom. Oh. And it's equal parts gin, fresh uh, blood orange juice, and uh, sweet vermouth. Oh, that sounds nice. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not it's not too sweet, and the blood orange juice in particular has a little bit more uh, tartness to it. So it's uh it's nice. I like I I like my gin cocktails. So it's hard well to go suited. wrong. Yeah. yeah. So tonight I thought we could uh, unpack uh, something that's been coming up for the past couple weeks, and listeners have even been asking about it. And it's been something I've wanted to do, but it required a bit more research. So. It is the topic of valuations and Tesla's valuation in particular. It's out of control. That is what you would be led to believe if you read the (laughs) financial press, if you listen to CNBC. Um, And essentially, in the past few weeks, Tesla's market capitalization has passed $50 billion. And the reason that uh, has caused many an uh, an ink to be spilled is... uh, because it's higher than uh, Ford, and also it, it briefly uh, passed General Motors to uh, vault Tesla to becoming the most valuable American car maker uh, by, by stock valuation. And so what this has done is cause many tweets and uh, articles, as we were <laughs> referencing, to be written furiously by people who will say things uh, like uh, Christopher Mims, who actually is a tech columnist at the Wall Street Journal. So two, two things that should make him quite capable of, of making a good judgment on this. <laughs> Tesla delivered 76,000 cars last year, deeply in debt. Ford, 20x more revenue, billions in profit on millions of cars each year. And yet... And then it was a link to the tweet saying they're the most valuable. So implied in that tweet, obviously, is that how can this be? How can Tesla deliver so few cars and have so little money and be in such debt and still be worth more than Ford? And then Walt Mossberg, uh, famed tech columnist, replied, I admire Tesla and Elon Musk, but this is the billionth example of why stock market valuations don't reflect reality. So I think that's sort of the backdrop for our discussion. Um, yeah, did you see all this press? <laughs> well, mostly I just want to know where is Jim Cramer on this? What's the mad money take on on Tesla? Because that's how I base all of my uh, investing recommendations. He actually uh, has come around on Tesla, and uh, his latest post about this was actually quite in line with what we'll be discussing, um, saying that it's not uh, it's not crazy. Oh God, that are, worries me. Then they are not more highly valued. <laughs> Now, he's, he's been negative on Tesla for many, many years, and I think he's basically re- resigned himself that he's gotten it wrong so much. He basically said, my, my approach has led me not to want to invest in Tesla, but I can't ignore that it is definitely a stock that has gone up a lot. Um, so oh, no. I'm going to have to alter my, my investment strategy of doing whatever the opposite of Mad Money recommends. That's gonna, that, was, that was pretty solid strategy for a while. Yeah. Also, I, I guess I'll say I don't currently own any Tesla stock. I don't know about you. But, yeah, I um, don't either. And uh, I mean, unless I it's have, in a mutual fund or something. Yeah, but yeah. I, 
I have from time to time, but I think that uh, also th we're not intending to give stock advice. The goal here is to talk about valuations in a more abstract way using Tesla as a vehicle, pun intended, to uh, describe uh, different different facets of how valuations work uh, and also sort of use our um, our own personal experiences in technology companies out here in the Valley to describe how valuations can sometimes be um, non-intuitive. Uh, <laughs> but as always, this is not financial advice. Consult a accountant or, or financial professional. Advisor. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So jumping into it, uh, one of the things that also causes a lot of this consternation to occur is that Tesla is one of the most shorted stocks. Um, they have about 26% of their shares. So if Tesla had 100 shares, which they have a lot more than that, 26 of those would be people betting that the stock is going to go down. Um, and so just to put that in context, a similarly shorted stock is GoPro, uh, maker of uh, those cameras that uh, sports folks will use. Uh, and then another one, uh, which is actually less shorted, is Groupon. So Groupon's stock currently has less people betting against it than Tesla. What is it, what is it valued at though? Like, what are they? Is it is it already so low that people are betting it's not going to go any lower? Or what's no, neither the... of them are super low. GoPros had some big problems, but um, the the uh, if they kept yeah if they the, those stocks are not at zero yet, so there's still room <laughs> for them to go down. Um, not a, not saying that either of them is going to go down. Just to, it, anyways. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I was just trying to contextualize because the, the shorting is one piece of information, but that that's based on what the current value is, right? Like you're saying, whatever the value is, is too high. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I guess just stepping back just for a second um, for terms, uh, valuation uh, is really sort of the sum of the value of all the shares outstanding, which essentially represents what it would cost to buy that company right now in, in this very second, assuming, you know, they were going to accept that price and not try and negotiate for more because, hey, you want to buy us. So, well, and, and assuming that all of the, sh that a majority of the shares are available for sale too. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's it'll sort of, just be the shares that are publicly traded. Yeah. So it's just, the, it's the instantaneous price of what that company is supposed to be worth. Um, and obviously when you try and buy a company, things go wacky with that price. You usually have to pay more, but from like a theoretical point of view, if you take the, the share price and you multiply it by all the number of shares outstanding, you get to what the market cap is. And that's also synonymous for the valuation. Um, so we'll use market cap and valuation sort of interchangeably here, but they're, they're meaning the same thing. So when you take all the shares of Tesla times like the around 300 bucks, it gets to around $50 billion. The stock price itself is kind of irrelevant. Um, because you can issue more shares and the stock price will go down, but the fundamental value of the company shouldn't change if you add more shares. Um, so, you know, looking at the actual stock price itself is not actually the important thing. It's just the uh, absolute value of the value of the company. So just wanted to say that up front because it, it took me a little while when I was first getting the stocks to understand what that even kind of meant. Um, so watching CNBC, Bob Lutz, who was a former uh, chairman of GM, was on there saying, I think they're doomed. Uh, the upside on their pricing is limited. Everyone else sells at a loss. So there's a ceiling and they can't make, they can't even make money on those high-end cars. So how are they going to make money on a $35,000 car? Um, and that was just like this week. He said, Elon Musk seems to be beamed in from another planet and is just the best salesperson. 
Um, and this isn't new, uh, these sort of calls for Tesla being overvalued. Um, CNN in 2013 said it was one of the most overvalued stocks. That was when it was at $170. Uh, Forbes in 2013 uh, said it reached an all-time high, and there's no room for it to go up anymore. That was at $180 a share. And then USA Today had a headline, wildly overvalued, question mark, Tesla. And then it was, uh, that was February 2014, and it was at 220 bucks. So all of those previous articles, uh, the stock price was currently lower, the valuation was lower than it is today, all saying it's too expensive, it's overvalued. Um, now, some of them did couch it with a question mark, so gotta Charities. give them a little credit. <laughs> um, so... Elon even responded to that last set of tweets from, uh, from the Wall Street Journal uh, columnist and, and uh, basically saying Tesla is absurdly overvalued if you base it on the past. But that's irrelevant. A stock price represents the risk-adjusted future cash flows. Um, and that is pretty accurately describes how most people think about valuing companies on a fundamental level. So I thought we could talk about what that means. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like that's the the crazy part here is like people are talking about the value of Tesla versus the value of Ford, but it seems like the more apt analogy is the value of Ford versus the value of like a textile manufacturer in 1905, right? Like one of those has a lot more growth potential than the other, and essentially that's what's being priced in. Yeah, or or even like uh, the largest uh, horse and carriage maker versus Ford. Right. Uh, in like 1905. And it's like, well, Ford doesn't make any cars yet. We make the most horse buggies of anyone. And our customers love horse buggies. And no one's asking for a car. They just want more luxurious horse buggies. And what do you, why, why, why would this company be worth anything? We're, we're clearly the market leader and going to be around forever. <laughs> um, and so look at the, our projections. They are going up and to the right. Exactly. So the, the, the most um, fundamental thing I think most folks who look at Tesla and any technology company or any company that is sort of somewhat early on in its life um, and has the potential for growth is that, to your point, they look at a comparison at static time right now to what uh, a market leader has done and where they are now compared to where a future, like this, the smaller company is right now. And they say, well, we don't make as, they don't make nearly as much product. They don't sell as much. How can you value them equally? Or even in this case, a little bit more than the other. And the big reason is that the past doesn't matter at all in a stock price. All of that cash and all of that money that the company has made in their previous history is already been accounted for by investors. Um, and so if the company were to go out of business right now, you know, shut its doors, it would have zero value. It doesn't matter how much value they created in the past. All that matters is, so, so the, the flip side of that is all that matters is how much value the company is going to make in the future. And so you take essentially how much profit is this company going to make for the rest of its life and you add all that together and then you discount it for some percentage because there's some risk in you know them ever being able to do that and also the risk of you're putting in money today for dollars to come out in the future so there's some risk adjustment you need to do yeah it seems like people might be getting um sort of conflating the idea of the stock price and the idea of the dividend payments like 
like the the dividend payments that come in each quarter for i mean for stocks that pay out dividends which yeah ford and gm both do right right so like tech companies don't because they plow or, or ostensibly plow all that money back into growth uh but yeah so that might be something where you know if you're if you're planning on getting dividend payments for every share of stock that you own then you want to take into account the very short-term uh profitability of the companies but when you're talking about the share price you're talking about placing a bet on what that value will become at some point in the future yeah and and even in the case of the dividends you would factor those in right because that value is going to come out to the shareholder and so the value can be harvested in payments by dividends to your point or in stock appreciation which you could choose to then sell that stock and reap that benefit but fundamentally it all goes down to what's the value of that company and if you have money inside the company it's worth something if you uh, give that back to your investors through uh, dividends you know the value is not in the company anymore but that's okay because you paid for access to that so the the thing that elon musk is talking about here and that even someone like warren buffett the way he thinks about it is future cash flow discount discounted future cash flows is the primary most fundamental way to value a company now there are obviously other ways you can value it based on more sort of trading methodologies like oh the stock has has been has been trading at its 6 month average and and it just went below that so it's kind of cheap right now so i'm going to jump in and try and make a trade <laughs> and and we're not talking about trading here we're we're really trying to talk about uh, one of my favorite quotes of Jeff Bezos is that in, in the short term, the, the stock market is a voting machine. In the long term, it's a weighing machine. Uh, and I think that's sort of a nice way to think about the ideas here, that the stock prices of companies will go up and down in the short period based on sort of news and just buy, you know, demand and supply. But Long term, uh, the stock market tends to be pretty good at determining the actual value of a company. And so trying to get outside just the one month or two month or six months sort of trading of stocks uh, to get to what is the real value of a company is what we're trying to you know unpack today. Um, so that discounted cash flow concept, just to, to make it even more clear, if a company were to um, go bankrupt and have no, uh, no money ever coming in again, that company would be valued at zero dollars. I think most people would agree with that. Uh, now they may have some like equipment or whatever that you could sell, and so it would be or, or liabilities too. And the other yeah, they column. may even have debt, right? And so, uh, in some countries, bankruptcy laws allow you to sort of wipe that clean, which is good for businesses, but you know has some other negative effects. But the um, the converse of that would be if you're a company that's going to make a dollar this year, two dollars next year, three dollars a year after, four dollars a year after. Um, you, your value is much more about what the future holds for you than what you do today, right? Because you may only be making a dollar in profit today, but in 10 years, you'll be making $100 in profit. And so depending on the investor's ability to predict the future, uh, we'll let them say, you know what, I think this company's worth X. And someone else will say, I only think it's worth half X because they don't believe they're going to hit that target. And so the, the sort of fuzziest part of this is, even if you try and bake in what you think the future cash flows of a company are, there's so many assumptions you have to make about that company that that's why people will have very different points of view about what the value of a company is, especially if the majority of the profits and sort of fundamentals of that company have yet to been discovered. And I think that's the most sort of important thing here is that Tesla is, you know, a 
not a very old company. So we've got Tesla that is from 2003, 14 years old, comp being compared to Ford, which is from 1903, got started in 1903, and GM that was started in 1908. So both of those companies are just over 100 years old, in GM's case, 99 years old. So it's not quite a fair comparison uh, in terms of the, the development of those two those three companies. Does that, does that seem right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're 99 years old, so, you know, they have, they have 99 problems, but an overinflated valuation is not one. <laughs> nice. Yeah, exactly. So the, the stage of a company makes a huge difference in how you think about the valuation and how people will different, um, what they'll factor in. Right. So in a startup, when you just are getting started, you're a couple people and you've got this great idea uh, you might be worth a couple million dollars, depending on what you're trying to do, especially if it's in software. And, and one, you how you define worth. Worth, exactly, right? <laughs> yeah. And the, the important thing there is, you know, you might not be able to sell that company for a few million dollars right now, but it, it's sort of important to, um, to bring in some outside capital. And, and so there, at that stage, at the startup stage, oftentimes the value of the company is much more around just making sure that investors have some ownership um, but even in that case, there are folks who, you know, if you were an early investor in Apple or an early investor in Google or an early investor in YouTube or an early investor in, uh, you know, Twitter or any of these companies, even if you had valued it at a few million dollars when it was just the founders, you'd be doing pretty well right now. Well, um, maybe not Twitter, but yeah. No, even Twitter did really well. Those they, they still did fine. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it's. I think the important thing is that, like, yeah, you're when you're when you're. People view Silicon Valley as as a bubble and so optimistic, and but that's the whole point, right? Is that you're actually like buying in and and putting money into these companies with the idea that you can see this future for them. Where at this certain point in the future, like five years out, or you know f three years out, or however long out, ten years out, that they'll be worth this much. That they'll have done all the things that they say they're going to do, and that'll actually become real. And that's your bet is that you paid, you know, once they're out there in 10 years time and the stock is worth $100 a share and you bought in for 50 cents a share, then you have an enormous profit upside. Exactly. And at that very early stage, the risk that the company just totally explodes is very, very high. And so there's a uh, increasing amount of certainty in what that company will eventually become over time. But there's also a, a counter force of a decreasing amount of upside um, because more information is available and so you don't have as much potential. So once you sort of move out of that startup phase, you move into sort of this growth stage and you sort of alluded to it when it's possible for a company like Tesla where they're making 100,000 cars. If they said, you know what, we're not going to make the Model 3. We're not going to make the Model Y. We're not going to do trailers, tractor trailers. We're not going to invest in self-driving cars. We are just going to sell these cars, and we're just going to do as, as small a staff as possible to get these S's and X's out. They could go old school car dealer, crazy Elon and his used car deals. Yeah, they could, they could be profitable. They could make profits. Uh, based on the the sales they're doing, but they're not choosing to to go down that path. And to what you alluded to, any of the cash that's generated from those operations 
uh, they're using to invest, to grow and try and grow faster by hiring more engineers, by hiring more salespeople, by opening more stores, by turning on more superchargers, by working on new development programs for the Model 3 and the Model Y and the Semi and the minibus, and hiring self-driving car engineers and building the Gigafactory, that all of those things cost money today for products and services that will be available in the future. And they want to do that to such a degree, they happen to actually go back to investors and sell more of the company for their cash now. And one of the things that's, that's, that's one thing that's very different from established companies like a GM or Ford is it's very rare for them to uh, plow so much money back into the company because one reason is they actually don't have useful ways to spend that money. And so what they'll do with it instead is just give it to shareholders. And Microsoft has had this problem in the past, and some investors really like it if you want dividends, but many investors actually in the tech world see it as a negative because it basically implies that you think giving that money to investors, they will know what to do with it better than you could, that they can turn that into growth more than you can turn it into growth. Um, and Ford and GM are sort of in the spot where they, they do have profits, but they don't currently need that money to invest in growth because they don't really, they're actually shrinking. They're not, they're not growing. Um, and so this is one of the things that like Peter Thiel, who is a friend of Elon Musk and co-founder as well at PayPal, ha- talks about a lot as sort of this idea that if your company is growing very, very quickly, it's very difficult as like just a human being to understand the sort of exponential curves that occur in companies that, especially in technology companies, that you can go from having a thousand users to a hundred thousand users to a million users to a hundred million users to a billion users in such a relatively short time frame. In you know, if you're thinking about the case of Facebook, that when Facebook was just with high schools and they turned down that one billion dollar offer from Yahoo, it seemed crazy. But if you actually sort of believe that it's possible for them to get to everyone, then a billion dollars is way too cheap for Facebook. And in this case, it worked out. Oftentimes it doesn't. But that's, that's the, the, the philosophy that you have to adopt if you really believe that you're at the early part of that growth curve. And I think what Tesla is saying through both their actions and through what they've said publicly, is that they believe they're very early on in the trajectory of the company. And so the majority of the profits and cash from operations will come in the future. It hasn't come yet. And so to think about what the company's done today or will do in the next 12 months isn't actually how you should think about valuing the company. You should really be thinking about it for what are we going to do in 2022? What are we going to be doing in 2023? And that's where you get into the spot where it's plausible for Tesla to be valued at $50 billion, um, even though they sell, you know, a thousand times less cars than, than some of these other makers. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I, I had gone all the way back to Ford and, and a textile manufacturer in 1905. But if you just jump back to, let's say, 1999 or 1998, and you think, you know, do I want to buy stock in this Amazon company or should I just go with the Barnes and Noble, which is, you know, they're established, they're a huge brand, everyone knows who they are, they've got stores all around the country. Like, why would I put all my money into this Amazon company that's not paying any dividends? It's very risky. They're plowing all their money back into the company. Uh, you know, that would that would have seemed like a conservative, rational choice would mm-hmm. have been to invest in Barnes and Noble stock. But what you were actually betting on was this 
Amazon's like idea of the future and what they were going to become. And if you had bought it back in 1998, you'd be very wealthy now. Well, also too, right? Like if Amazon had come out and said, we're going to compete with Barnes and Noble by making stores inside of malls or inside shopping centers, maybe it would have been a dumb idea to invest in them because right. if they were competing with them in that same exact way, it's possible that Barnes and Noble would have, would have been able to stop them. But they actually came at them in a different way. And yet people thaw, saw them as doing the same thing, like selling books. And that actually wasn't what they were going to be doing. Uh, and I think there's definitely even more similarities there to Tesla where Yes, they're selling cars, um, but if you if you believe that there is something different about a Tesla than a regular internal combustion engine vehicle, if you believe that self-driving vehicles are going to make a difference, um, then it's very plausible for Tesla to have a, a sort of different actual market opportunity, even though right now it looks like they're just sort of a niche high-end car maker, and so how could you ever value them so so highly? So yeah, the, the growth is really critical um to companies because they're one of the other things in the stock market at least is there's typically growth investors and value investors and so a value investor is saying this company like a utility or a railroad they're very reliable uh they're not going to grow very much they might grow a couple percent each year but they they have relatively stable profits and earnings and so to your point earlier they may throw off a fair amount of dividends and they like that reliability because there's not a lot of volatility. But then you've got the growth investors, which are saying, look, I want to I outperform the market. And just for reference, like the S Standard & Poor's 500, which is sort of the 500 largest U.S. American, US companies, uh, the annual growth rate for their earnings was 9.27%, like right now. So right now, that's sort of the annual growth rate for all those 500 companies is 9.27%. So if you want to do better than the S&P, you need to be investing in companies that are growing their earnings or growing their top line so that their earnings will eventually catch up at more than 9%. So if you want those sort of growth stocks, you need to be investing in companies that are growing at more than 9% a year. And there actually aren't that many companies that grow at more than 9% a year because once you get kind of large, you usually have tapped out your kind of potential. And so Tesla coming from a base of so small, and we'll talk about it a little bit more, sort of what their trajectory has been, they've been growing at more than 50% a year. And so there's a large class of investors who are buying into Tesla, partly because it's one of the few companies that actually is growing at such a rate in such a large market, um, right. where if they were to continue that trend, they could be massive. Um, and you would see this as well in, in Apple, right? When Apple was just sort of doing the iPod, they were growing quite a bit because they were just coming from Macs, and then you had iPod, and then you had them selling smartphones, and the smartphone market was, was not huge, but the phone market was huge, and we had this transition from mobile phones to, or just sort of dumb phones to smartphones, and Apple was both selling very large volumes of them at high profit margin, so they were growing very, very quickly, and they went from like a $5 billion valuation to now being the largest valued company in the US, it's, I think in the world actually at 750 billion. So they've had a pretty good run over the past decade. <laughs> yes. Understatement. Yes, <laughs> and, and what's interesting about that, right, is at any one of those points between 5 billion and 750 billion, there were many people who thought it was sort of at its peak. Right. And so even if it was $10 billion at that $5 billion time frame, for instance, say it was double the value it should have been, you would have still wanted to own it at 10 billion 
because it, it eventually ended up at 750. And so that's just this constant challenge you have as an investor and in thinking about the value of companies is, well, if it actually succeeds, and this is where venture capitalists uh, try and uh, talk about what they do, is like that, that if, you, if it's actually going to succeed in the, in the positive case, the price you pay right now actually doesn't have that big of a bearing as long as it actually is still going to be many multiples of where it is today. And so it, for Tesla, that means that it really needs to be many multiples of where it is today uh, for you to have a, 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 you know, a really big outcome. And that's where people will debate. If, if you believe Tesla sort of tapped out at around 150, 200,000 cars, 300,000 cars, and that valuation is crazy. It, it will not support that, and the stock price will crash. If you believe that they actually will grow into that valuation by selling millions and millions of cars and millions of batteries, then, then the question is, well, how far in the future are we baking in that assumption? And that's what we'll, we'll dig into a little bit more. All right. Sounds good. So uh, some comparisons. So Ford um, – oh, one, one other thing I want to talk about before we get into this was <laughs> – one more thing. Sorry, one more thing. Uh, one other major component of stock price and, and company valuations uh, as a result is margin. And it's something we've talked about uh, tangentially in, in almost all of our earnings calls, uh, dissections for Tesla. But margin is what leads to profit. Um, if you had 0% margin, you would pull in $100 of revenue from someone, and it would cost you $100 to provide that hundred dollars in value and you would do all this work and you would have zero dollars in profit and so you'd have zero dollars to return to your investors so in this case like if, if tesla was selling the base model s for say seventy thousand dollars and it actually cost them seventy thousand dollars to manufacture it and deliver it to the customer they would have zero margin yeah and that's you know and the salaries of all the executives and everything all in all the leases everything you know right. the electricity Everything it takes. costs, yeah. Exactly. All of that, if that all went to, z you know, 0% margin would mean people are employed, there's service being provided. So it's not as if there's zero value. It's just there's zero profit for investors. And so generally what a result of that is, is that the higher, sorry, well, the lower. <laughs> the result of that is usually that the accountants come in and start improving the margins by making everything cheaper and worse. True. That does tend to happen. Well, if you're not growing, right? If you're not actually growing anything, then you're actually going to be cutting things. And, and that's the, the thing that everyone's all too familiar with, with airlines and any other captive industries. Exactly, right? If, if it's a low margin industry, yeah, you can either continue, you can get more leverage on those fixed costs. So your, you know, hubs that you have, you can try and run more planes through them or you can try and put more seats in a standard sized airline, which will lead to less legroom, um, to try and eke out some profit margin, which is then profit to either reinvest in the business or return the shareholders, which will give your company some value. So higher profit margin leads to higher valued companies because each incremental dollar of money you bring in from a customer uh, will lead to more profits for the investors. Um, and generally, if you assume there's a fixed size to the market, so you know the, there's going to be X number of smartphones sold, then if you can get 25% of that share, but you're actually pulling in double the profit per phone, your company would theoretically be you know, about twice as valuable as a competitor who it costs them twice as much to deliver that same service. Does that make sense so far? Yep. So then the important piece 
is that uh, if, if your company can continually improve margin or somehow figure out how to have higher margin, even if you have the same revenue uh, or sell the same number of cars in this case, or even sell very few cars, you will be valued much higher because when you reach saturation, which most companies eventually do, your company will have way more profits. So it's this massive multiplier on your uh, sort of revenue base. So it's basically how efficient are you? Because you could do a lot of work to make zero profit in the car industry, or you could do very little work in the software industry and basically have very high margin. And generally, technology companies have higher margin and physical good companies have lower margin. And so Tesla is going to be trying to behave and act and have profit margins much more similar to a technology company than a car company. So for instance, um, Ford's revenue is 100, was $150 billion last year. It's a lot of cash coming in. Don't think many people could argue with that. But... <laughs> They only have a 3% net profit margin. So only 3% of that $150 billion ends up as profit. So, th so they have $4.5 billion in profit. So they did $145 billion in work, essentially, of, of things being bought to provide those cars, salaries and everything. And they end up with $4.5 billion in profit. So not a very high margin business. And they sold 6.5 million cars and trucks doing that. So that's one, that's one thing. So GM was 166 billion. They're a little better. They've got 5.6% net margin. Um, and they sold 10 million cars. So they ended up with $9 billion in profit. So that's like two very big US car makers, which Tesla has passed. But if you compare it to a company like Procter & Gamble, and the reason I picked them is they're, no offense to Procter & Gamble, but they're kind of a boring company. They sell a lot of stuff you'd buy in the grocery store. They sell soap. I mean, they literally sell soap. Hey, CPG companies are very exciting to online advertisers. If you're selling online ads, you love the CPG companies. That's true. Um, and one, one thing about that is a lot of people would say, well, it's sort of a commodity business, right? It's just soap. Like, who cares what soap I make? There's not much technology in there. So for Procter & Gamble... They had $65 billion in, in revenue, so less than GM and Ford by quite a bit. But they had a 15% net profit margin. So they made $22 billion, um, sorry, $10 billion in profit last year. So they made twice as much in Ford, and they made the same as GM, even though they had about a third the revenue. Um, and so they are valued... Uh, they're, so PG, Procter & Gamble's market cap is $225 billion and GM's is 50. So uh, even though they make a lot less revenue, they're valued at five, you know, four and a half times as much as GM. So just to sort of point out how these things all interrelate and really quickly lead to very different outcomes in valuation. Yeah, that's interesting, Caleb. I did not notice Procter & Gamble mentioned in any of these Tesla is overvalued hot takes that we've been reading. Yeah, exactly. It, it's, uh, it's definitely not something that uh, you would be like, well, Procter & Gamble is overvalued and they have less revenue uh, and they make more profit. Like, how is that possible? Um, well, they're working on new advanced self-applying soaps. So, you know, yeah. it's, it's autonomous soaps. And, and teeth whitening strips that are, you know, even, even better at whitening my teeth. Um, <laughs> and then Apple, as sort of the pinnacle of uh, market cap, um, 
they do 215 billion in revenue. But their market cap is $745 billion, which is 15 times more than GM. And the primary reason is that they have a 21% profit margin. So they make a lot of money uh, relative to the amount of money they bring in from customers. So if Tesla were actually able to achieve margins between that 15% of Procter & Gamble um, and Apple, then if they were to sell as many cars as GM, they would be the most valuable company on the earth, for sure. I mean, they would probably pass a trillion dollar valuation if you were to use those similar metrics. So that's really where people are coming at this from, is looking at the potential of growth for Tesla, looking at the profit margins Tesla wants to achieve, and looking you know, a few years out into the future and sort of saying, where could you imagine them, them being? And when you look out at Ford and GM, which have been in decline for the past few years, their profits are declining, uh, you project them out to the future and you don't end up with happy, rosy numbers. Um, So those two factors (laughs) of GM and Ford declining and sort of already having peaked and Tesla having 0.1% market share and believing, well, is it possible for them to 10x their market share to 1% of the cars made in the world or 2% of the cars made in the world? Is that plausible? If yes, then their market cap is not ridiculous. Indeed. It's even, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess we can get into, or maybe you want to get into this later, but we can get into talking about if you do want to buy Tesla stock, is it actually a good idea now, given that essentially the best case scenario, or at least their their full success scenario is already being priced into the stock? Do you want to dive into that now or, or yeah. hold yeah, that to later? Yeah, I think... Um, uh, one one other thing I was just going to say uh, was this idea that how could Tesla have better margin? Because I think fundamentally it's critical if if Tesla wants to be valued more than these other com- well, not Tesla doesn't want, but if Tesla <laughs> were to be valued more than these other companies, then I think you have to assume that their profit margin will be higher. And so then you have to think about well, what are the things that would lead to their profit margin being higher? And one really important factor is um, vertical integration. And so Tesla is intending to produce m- many of their parts themselves. They want to produce the motors themselves, which car makers already make their own engines. So that's not sp- particularly unique. But they also are going to be making the batteries themselves um, with the Gigafactory in partnership with Panasonic, obviously. And they also want to uh, increase the rate of production so that the fixed costs uh, of manufacturing are spread out more across many more vehicles so so that the uh, cost of manufacturing as a percentage of the cost of the vehicle could go down quite dramatically, and we'll see what happens there. But even just bringing suppliers in-house will have a pretty big impact. And so I did a little digging. So Gentex, company many people have never heard of, makes rearview mirrors, and they make rearview mirrors for the majority of the major automakers. And in 2016, they had $350 million in profit. Uh, So basically a sixth of the profit of all of Ford Motor Company. Wow. And the big reason is they have 20% net margin. So their company operates at margins similar to Apple, making rearview mirrors. And then you go to something (laughs) like Delphi, which is much larger. Uh, In 2016, they had $2.2 billion in profit. Um, So (laughs) 
their their profit was half of what Ford's was. So they're a supplier, and they have a thirteen percent net margin. So so basically, the the middlemen are are making are squeezing more profit out than the sort of final assembler of the vehicle. Yeah, exactly. And so what this reminds me of is Dell and Gateway, where <laughs> Intel has always been a very profitable company selling their differentiated chips, but they've been selling them to all these different manufacturers who are trying to be a marketing company, essentially, and market a Compaq or an HP or a Dell computer. And the parts suppliers actually can have a differentiated uh, product, you know, you can have the best camera sensor, you can have the best memory, you can have the best hard disk. And so you will be chosen for all these products. But the final assembler may not make much profit at all. And so I think that's one of the really funny things about the auto industry is that even though GM and Ford are the ones who are running the majority of the cash through the system as a result of the car being purchased, the majority of that money actually ends up going back to the suppliers who are providing them parts, and those people run their companies very well from a profit point of view and are extracting quite a bit of profit from their activities. And so if you were to absorb those companies and pass all that margin through to the, the you know, this Uber company, this bigger company. <laughs> so it's then, probably not a good way of referring to Not a to good it. way to say it, sorry. Not uh, Uber you, the company. But not Uber the company. And, an, an Uber company. Yes, exactly. Das uh, Uber company. Das Uber company. Uh, you would have much better margin. Uh, and so for Tesla, this is their their plan of attack is if they can take the major cost components of the vehicle and manufacture themselves and save all that margin for their own business, they will have uh, quite a bit. And then also, if they're not selling to dealerships who then need to pay for salespeople and their own profit, then they can also absorb some of the profit there because they're going to have pricing power. And the other big one that the car makers have is they have all these incentives to get people to buy cars that they built that people don't actually want. And so they hurt their margin there. And so the more that you build cars that people actually want to buy, which is a shockingly, incredibly smart idea, um, then uh, you also help your margin because you don't have to discount product that has been sitting around and people don't want. Right. And sure, I mean, surely that must feed into the profitability of the part suppliers too because the like the general motors are ordering a certain number of parts and that's oh yeah they constant. get paid yeah so they get paid no matter what and then general motors has to be the one who's doing the forecasting and and will eat any sort of uh profit losses from any losses from from over over forecasting i guess yeah exactly so tesla has all of those sort of advantages built in plus they have four massive trends that i think um, we talk about a lot, but are still under ex underappreciated in the global automotive world of like electric vehicles, number mm -hmm. one, self-driving, energy storage, because they also are going to be making these home battery packs and battery packs for, uh, for utilities, and solar energy. So Tesla, those all could be indiv indiv independent companies, and there are independent companies that are going to be valuable attacking those sort of four trends just in the world and tesla happens to be a company that has all four built into it so that's kind of powerful yeah and i mean just from the from the car manufacturing side too um just to kind of stick on that with the with the parts suppliers is they've also been able to i mean because it's an electric vehicle it's just inherently mechanically simpler there's a lot there's less moving parts and or 
you know, it's just more simple than an internal combustion engine vehicle. And they've specifically, uh, from what we hear, designed the Model 3 to be easier to assemble uh, robotically or automatically. Um, so yeah, they're, they're driving down uh, or driving up their margins or driving down their manufacturing costs, both in how they're building it and in kind of, in a way, what they're building. Yeah, and and the both the manufacturing costs and the manufacturing speed. Elon on one of the one of the earnings calls, I think it was actually one of the investor calls for the Groman Engineering purchase was, if you're making a commodity like popcorn, was his example. If you can make a batch of popcorn for a dollar, uh, and everyone else can make it for a dollar, then you're just going to be competing, and it's going to be really rough because people will pay you know a dollar two or dollar three cents for popcorn. But if you can make popcorn for fifty cents. Then you can sell your popcorn for seventy cents, which is cheaper than anybody else, and you now go from making a two cent profit to a twenty cent profit. So, if you can reduce the cost of something such that your competitors can't ever come close to it, you can go from a, a business that has typically been extremely low margin, two or three percent in in the case of popcorn, and also in the case of uh, of um, cars to something where now you have very large profit margin and the consumer is better off because the price is lower. And so that's why they're so focused on reducing the cost of the actual vehicle, which they have this positive trend where the batteries are getting cheaper every year and the motors are getting more efficient every year, so you need less energy. Um, so that's a positive force, similar to what's happened in, in the technology IT space in chips. And then also if you can increase the rate of production such that no one else can make as many cars for you in the same amount of space and capital expenditure, then you will be able to have a competitive advantage in making electric cars because all these other factories have to retool to make them. So that's, that's their like fundamental hope is that long-term that will be their competitive advantage. And then in the near term, it will be the self-driving capabilities will be a few years ahead of everyone else. And so given the same electric drivetrain, assuming everyone does electric drive chains, you would still choose a Tesla because it is designed well and it has self-driving capabilities. And then longer term, they believe their manufacturing capabilities will lead them to outpace all their competitors. And there's precedent for that. Intel is a company that has incredibly strong manufacturing capabilities. And because their process, their, their chips are running at a smaller nanometer feature size, they continue to be at the leading edge, even though they're, they're, they, they cost more, the performance per cost is lower than many other competitors. Um, so there is precedent for this in manufacturing. Yeah, it kind of reminds me too of how Apple manufactures devices and or the iPhone specifically uh, about how it's a, you know, most people consider the iPhone to be upper end of the market or even maybe luxury good, I guess. Uh, but they eat up the vast majority of profits in the smartphone industry. And if I remember correctly, between Apple and Samsung put together, I think they make over 100% of the profits in the smartphone industry because all the other people competing are actually losing money each year. Yep. Um, and and that's, that's crazy. I mean, that, that's really kind of insane to think about. Totally. And one of the things that's unusual in the smartphone market is that uh, because Apple does have so much of the profit power and, and they also generally have quite a bit of share, more than the... Um, same amount of share that the car companies do is that the car companies, there's not very many people. I don't think any of them have more than 10% share. And so no one is really modeling that any car company could have more than 10% uh, market share. But there are plenty of other industries where once someone breaks through with a better technology, uh, it does coalesce around 
them as the leader and they might have 50 or 60 percent market share and then there's sort of a number two and number three and then four five six seven eight sort of all this or summed up it sort of becomes a power law distribution instead of this equal distribution and equal distribution makes more sense when there's no profits really available because a it's not very interesting you don't have any cash to invest um and it just sort of reaches the stasis point where no one has any pricing power. Uh, but if there is sort of a differentiated competitive advantage, you can actually use that pricing power to reinvest in the company. And so that's what the positive case for Tesla would be that they actually do fulfill on that promise. And for many people, making cars now becomes totally uh, not a viable business strategy because you can't compete with, with Tesla. Um, and that's definitely very far away from today. I'm not saying that's the case today for sure. But that is what they, as a company, are striving to do. And so that would be what your assumption would be about their future, would be that they will be able to do these things and, as a result, would command higher profit margins, which would lead them to having a higher valuation, even on far fewer vehicles. Right. So um, I guess maybe to, to kind of dive into the... Do you want to dive into the negative side here of, like, what's the... What's the risk for Tesla here? Um, I guess this is kind of what I was getting to earlier about like the the sort of uh, best case scenario seems to already be priced in uh, to the stock. So, you know, if, if you actually buy into the stock now, you're buying in on Tesla actually delivering all the Model 3 and stuff. And for you to then realize a good amount of profit um, of the on the appreciation of the shares that you buy, they'll have to exceed that or, or you know, achieve that and then keep going. Yeah. Um, and then I think the the maybe tying that back in the the risk is like we talked about in our last episode about Apple and, and their plans is that maybe, you know, in five years to 10 years, maybe the market is actually moving towards not actually buying cars and owning cars, which has been sort of the dominant paradigm of the last like 80 years or so. Uh, and instead of actually vehicle ownership, it's just more of like mobility that it just exists and you don't have to worry about that. And that's that seems to be, at least from, from my point of view, the, the big risk for Tesla right now. Yeah, so I did a, just some basic calculations around what different assumptions would lead to different valuations. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a chart in tabular format, so I'll do my best to do it on this uh, audio format. But <laughs> essentially, what my sort of back of the envelope, pretty simple uh, calculations would lead to is that Basically, the valuation now is baked in up until around 2018, uh, probably towards the end of 2018, maybe the beginning of 2019. And that would be if Tesla were to do half a million cars at an average selling price of $42,000, that would lead to $21 billion in profit, or sorry, $21 billion in revenue. And if they had a gross profit margin of 15%, which is lower than what they have now, but I'm sort of accounting for the fact that Model 3 will not be at the same margin they are now because it will take some time uh then they would have a um potentially like an eight percent net margin so they might make uh, a little bit of money and you have a pe of 25 which is just sort of the current uh s p 500 pe that would put them at 42 billion dollar valuation so half a million if they actually pulled off half a million cars in 2018 um, which is what they say they're going to do, they want to do, um, I think their valuation would actually be quite a bit higher because it would prove that they can get to higher, you know, higher amounts. But if you were to just value them on the profit that might come from that, it might be at 50 billion. Uh, so I think, yeah, I think they're sort of priced to somewhere between the end of this year and the end of next year. 
if they execute perfectly. And so the question is how much are people really baking in Model 3 into their price targets or not? Um, so we can, we can talk about that. But in the case where they get to 2 million vehicles, which would be less than BMW, uh, by 2022 I'm sort of modeling because they want to hit a million in 2020 and then give them another two years to double that again, uh, that would put them at a $300 billion valuation. So if you really want to make money on Tesla, I think you need to be looking out many years into the future and building a model around them shipping a couple million cars at around 25% gross margin, which would be about 15% net margin. And then it seems plausible that you could have quite a bit of upside. And so it really all does hinge on how quickly they can ramp up this production. And many of the previous investors and analysts are modeling it based on what they did with SNX and are like, well, you guys only make 100,000 now. How are you going to make a million in two years? And so any signs we see that or any investor sees that they actually are on track to be able to reach that sort of level, you, you could be really valuable. But the interesting thing is that 2 million is still uh, just 2% of the global market of 100 million cars. So, and that could still put them at $300 million valuation, which would, wouldn't be the most valuable company in the world, but it would certainly be a lot more when they're, than where they're at now. So even to your point, if ride sharing uh, becomes the predominant method and sharing vehicles, I think it's definitely clear we're going to need more than 2 million cars. Um, we're probably even going to need more than 50 million cars. So even if, every, you know, if cars went in half, um, you would still have quite a bit to grow into there. And I think that's a really advantageous thing for Tesla is because they make so few cars now, even if the total market for cars decreases quite dramatically, um, they could still take a very large percentage of that if they are the best at the ride-sharing, self-driving fleet world, where for the legacy automakers, they already are sort of at their peak levels, and any change in the overall market really hurts them and would, would lead to, to lower volumes. And that's not even assuming they're going to be you know, the top choice for ride-hailing services. Um, so, so those are a couple... Uh, couple thoughts on sort of how how they could get there is if they were doing two million cars at a 15 percent net margin so they're really throwing off profits it's really humming along um and they were valued about what the market's valued today publicly like just the overall market 25 pe then they could be worth around 300 billion dollars that's and and elon musk thinks they could eventually get to a trillion dollars uh valuation and so that would put them at you would need to do around six million cars at today's price points to to get there yeah so i mean hopefully that helps people understand a little more that when they talk about share price and and what the target is that that's what essentially what you're talking about is you're talking about this future scenario and you think the company is going to get to this point and you're placing a bet on it and you know if it pans out then you know you get your profits for for placing your bet you know commensurate to the amount of risk you're taking uh which would be in this case you know I guess right now there's a lot of downside risk, but um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm just confusing it by trying to sum up. No, no, no. I think that's right. And, <laughs> and I think I lost my own train of thought right there. No, I, and I think the other thing is you could put your money in a bank account right now and get almost nothing. So that also forces people to invest money in the stock market because if you're looking for any return, you can't just put it in a bank account and earn interest or in bonds that don't make very much. So right. one, one sort of macro thing that will cause people also to be talking about a bubble is that uh, currently, the sort of historical averages for stock prices right now are quite high. And usually when you have low interest rates, that tends to be the case because if you want growth, you can't 
diversify and have a lot of money in cash or in savings or in any other form, you need to have it in stocks. And when everyone has to buy stocks, it causes the price to go up because there's only so many shares of stock. Very simple supply and demand. So <laughs> as interest rates rise, which this is getting above our pay grade, but generally as interest rates rise, uh, the stock market will be under more pressure to, uh, to perform because there'll be other opportunities to get some level of return. Um, and, and the other thing on the Tesla stock, just short term, those short people who are short, if there becomes less, less people believing that Tesla's is going to go down, then they have to pull out and that will cause the price to go up. So there's like trading strategies that a lot of people will talk about around shorting, like basically betting that the shorts have to, to deal with the fact that they are going to give up and stop trying to short the stock. But I wouldn't recommend trying to do that. I would, I would no. really, if you are really thinking about Tesla, just think about the fundamental parts of the company. And uh, if all else fails, I would, I would uh, take a look at just broad-based index mutual funds and just okay. savings. Just Make as savings. a general rule, as a general rule, do the, do the split. Do, you do your split into a bond mutual fund, uh, uh, index fund tracking the whole market, and probably an international fund. That's usually yep. the, the three recommendations, and, and don't try and outsmart You'll probably do better are, than almost everyone on your block. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's, that's the rule I go by. Yeah, it's just I, I find this interesting, um, more just intellectually. Um, right. And, you know, you definitely hear people being like, oh, I used to own Apple in the 90s. And then I sold it to, to buy a car to buy my house. And if I had it now, I'd have $100 million or $50 million. And it's like, OK, there are some companies that are incredibly valuable over time. Starbucks, Nike, Apple, Google. For instance, when I sold all of my Amazon shares in 2006, that was not a good, not a good investment strategy. I mean, if I had put all the money I've ever spent on Netflix or Apple into those respective stocks, I would be quite a wealthy person. So yeah. there, there definitely is something to that, um, recognizing that a stock is going to be a household name, but picking stocks is very difficult. So um, I wouldn't beat yourself up too much about it if you were like, oh, I used to own some Tesla stock at 30 and I sold it at 90 because it felt like it was too expensive. So yeah, everything up until this point was not investment advice. That's, that's solid investment advice right there. All right. So where can people uh, share their uh, their opinions or if they if they believe Tesla's a Ponzi scheme, they're probably not listening to the show. But if they want to tell us that they think it's a Ponzi scheme, where can they do that? Yeah. If you're rage listening and you want to vent uh, about the Ponzi scheme, uh, you can tweet at us uh, on Twitter dot com at the Tesla show. Uh, you can reach us on our website at the Tesla show dot com. And uh, we do have a subreddit set up. If you would like to upvote or uh, make comments, you can uh, go to r slash the Tesla show and see all of our episodes and some chatter around them. Um, and yeah, we'd love to uh, love to hear if anyone has any and if anyone has any more uh, depth of expertise as a as a financial professional, uh, please weigh in. All right. Sounds good. And with that, I'll talk to you next week, Mike. All right. Bye, Caleb.